we are back behind the paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on AchieveRadio.com. And we are dealing with our fifth in their, in our, excuse me, our historic series on the Rendlesham UFO events of 1980. We're pleased to have with us today Dr. William J. Burns is uh, the anchor of our panel, author, speaker, publisher of UFO magazine and well known from UFO hunters. And two of our uh, amazing and heroic eyewitnesses, John Burroughs and Jim Penniston. And, uh, we uh, had to interrupt uh, for our break, but we're going to continue our conversation. Uh, so please, fellas, take it away. I want to, uh, guys, what I'd love to do is uh, we, we, at the break, we spoke about Vincent Thurkettle. And, uh, uh, and I, uh, uh, Jim, I think you might have spoken to Vincent Thurkettle in 2004 when he said he was mistaken. And three years later, he said there were rabbit scrapings. Right, and that's you know I uh, that's why I question all the skeptics on this and, the, and their credibility at all. Uh, when we do confront them, actually take them out there, show them in the woods exactly what's going on out there. It's always a different story. They go, oh yeah, we're mistaken. Can't understand what happened there. Uh, we were wrong. And to take it a step farther, we asked uh, Ian Ridpath to go out there on the 28th of December with us because you know what we're going to show he's wrong. I mean, it's, the evidence is clear. And he uh, he declined to do that. I mean, John almost begged him to go out there. He, just, he, he still won't go out there because uh, once that happens, once they are actually on the uh, uh, at ground zero there, they will realize that uh, those uh, things that they say could have been the possibilities just aren't possible. Well, and I want – well, before we dispose of Vincent Thurkettle, um, the, uh, the thing is, John – you and Jim uh, have, have really made it clear that there was an immediate investigation by OSI and other intelligence agencies, and the fact that NSA did have a station out there at Orford Ness. The mystery to me was always the identity of the two plainclothes, uh, I'm going to call them investigators, who, uh, who, who, who spoke to Vincent Thurkettle a day or so after the incident, but before Colonel Holt's report, did any of you ever learn the identity of or the agency they were from? No. Um, no, 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 we didn't. And they're not going to, they're not, okay, the best way to put this is, how would you know even who they are for sure anyway, even if they put something in their face? Because unless you know the person or can go to somebody that you know works for the agency and confirm them, how are you going to know for sure who you're dealing with or what's going on? That's right. And so what's fascinating to me is Vincent Thurkettle's story, which he told us on UFO Hunters, that um, he was confronted by two gentlemen, apparently well-dressed, plain-clothes gentlemen speaking with a British accent, who was who were asking him about what he'd seen in the forest. And, and you wonder, you wonder from that conversation whether they were implying to him that he saw nothing or were generally trying to find out if he saw anything or both. You know, maybe you saw something, maybe you didn't see something. We don't think you saw something um, in, the, in, in the forest that night. And you're a forester, so you would know. I mean, I'm just wondering what the... Because we only got to talk a little bit about it. But how would they have known to ask Vincent Thurkettle immediately unless they were in contact with the American investigators that were um, questioning um, um, Jim Penniston, John Burroughs, and the rest of the team? Well, that, that's got to be right. You've got, I'm sure 
And well, that there you go again, in my mind. They had to have contacted the, the British government to let them know something was going on. And like you just said, you have two people coming out and immediately asking questions about it. So therefore, again, if there was nothing, there was nothing going on, why would they be out looking into it and asking questions? And that is the, you're right, and that is the fourth prong of kind of what I consider like the four legs of a great UFO case is the government's official reaction to the case, not just the documentary evidence, because you've been very clear about the documentary evidence about the trace evidence, but the reaction of the government telling the command structure at the base one thing, telling you guys not to say certain things and, and to withhold certain facts, you guys not being that forthcoming with them because you want to protect your own careers, and at the same time getting the British investigators out there to talk to witnesses. I mean, strange if nothing was happening in the forest. I want to go to, I want to, go to Orford Ness with you guys. Um, when we were there with Colonel Halt, he made it absolutely clear by laying out for us the, uh, the GPS waypoints of the various positions that you, first of all, you guys had been at the base for enough time to have been able to recognize where you to have seen it, the um, light from Orford Ness as distinguished from something else. Would that be a correct statement? Yes. Well, it goes a step further, which I find interesting. In my statement, we clearly see a beacon light in the distance after we've already had it. And I, like, I love to state this. It talks about how we saw something strange. It was in the woods. We went up on it. It went away from us. And then when we got further out, we saw a beacon light. And this is where Rick Pat on his site kills me. He just immediately says, well, they saw the beacon light. It was lighthouse all the way through. It's not what my statement says. My statement says we then saw a beacon light. As we went further out, we clearly identified that beacon light as lighthouse. But up until the point where we had our contact, and in fact, what Jim said about a challenge route that to come out there, the distance of the lighthouse and what we described seeing and what my drawing is and everything else would never have played into a factor in what we came up upon when we first came up on it in the woods. Okay, and even David Clark admits, and he admits this on the BBC that he's not sure what happened in Gemini. Okay, now. There's two sites. You know that. There's what? There's two landing sites. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I know that. That's our landing site. You can't even see the Orford Nest Lighthouse. I mean, oh, it's uh, uh, you. It's off the end of the runway. Everybody can see it. I mean, if you work one shift, you'd know what that was because you say, hey, what's that over there? Well, that's the Orford Nest Lighthouse, someone would tell you. I mean, uh, it, your first thing you do as a security force member is to acclimate yourself with all your surroundings in darkness. I okay, mean, so... That the, is just security 101, <laughs> you know? So the, yeah, so the first thing you're saying is that, and this is important, everybody who was in that security personnel detail would have recognized the Orford Nest Lighthouse, and indeed, at one of the landing sites, they saw the Orford Nest Lighthouse and identified it as such, correct? That is absolutely true. On the now let, okay, now let's get to the second point, because Vincent Thurkettle, Ian Redpath, uh, Redpath, and of course, Thurkettle admits, um, uh, repeats this, is that, oh, the Americans were simply following the Orford Nest Lighthouse through the woods. Now, 
in Colonel Halt's statement, he said that when he was when he and his detail were looking at the light from the object in the clearing, they could see the object, which was so bright, it was reflecting off the windows of the farmhouse in the distance, and they could see the Orford Ness light. In other words, both were in their field of vision at the same time. Correct? Okay. 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 That's fair. I mean, but the other thing is, is listen to all state and when they actually have the beam of light coming down to them. Do you honestly and truthfully believe, and that's what people need to listen to, forget about everything else. Listen to this description, the sound of his voice. Do you think the Orphan Lighthouse would be above him beaming lights down to his feet? Correct. I agree with that 100%. So what happened was when we got to the clearing back in 2007, we actually asked our team to stand in the places where Colonel Halt said he saw the object and where the light would have been coming from. And we took GPS waypoints and photographed it. And we laid those GPS waypoints onto a model. And the model would have been, and the model was showing, this was a demonstration where the Orford Ness light was coming from and where the object was reflecting light off the windows on the farmhouse. And indeed, Colonel Halt was absolutely correct. There are two separate lights in your field of vision at the same time. One from whatever the object was and the reflection from the windows. And the other was clearly the Orford Ness light. But the funny thing is, the Orford Ness light never really made it to the land. So it couldn't have been the light that or you were following through the forest, because there was a bar. We spoke to Keith Seaman, who was a lighthouse keeper, and there was a bar there on the Orford Ness light itself, which prevented the light from playing across the land. So you could see it, but it wasn't on the land. It couldn't be mistaken for an object that had landed. It just couldn't. And that See, but was what we'll talk about that. That's the whole point with, with, with the skeptics and Clark and Ripath. Clark couldn't follow what he promised, and, and Ripath won't even talk about any of that. You will find that nowhere. You'll find that nowhere. And, and, and that's the problem with them. That's right. I mean, um, so, I mean, that's important to me because in, in the book that I'm doing on UFO Hunters in that episode, that's the point that I'm really hammering home that A, Eyewitness testimony, A. B, the testimony, our our observation of the lighthouse itself. We went to the lighthouse, okay, and spoke to Keith Seaman, the lighthouse keeper, who was there the whole time, okay? That's two. And three, a scientific um, replication of what the landscape looked at, looked like that night, all confirm one thing. That on that first night, the security detail would have known what the Orford Ness light was and what they saw on the ground was not the Orford Ness light. And two, when Colonel Holt and his team were following the light through the forest, it could not have been the Orford Ness light because it could never hit the forest floor. And out in the clearing, he could see both the Orford Ness light and the object at the same time. So it really blows the Ridpath argument out, blows the obviously blows Vincent Thurkettle out of the water 
and I believe that the kettle was set up by the uh, people who um, interrogated him, but it also blows David Clark's argument out of the water. In other words, the skeptics are the ones who are doing more, they're doing more reaching than the eyewitnesses who are simply reporting what they saw. You know, Bill, that's because they don't know what happened. That's what they're scared of. What happened? They don't have scared scared of what happened. They don't have the facts. That's why. They're scared of what happened. And then here's the ultimate one. And I'm going to tell you this straight up. I wish your path would have come on today because I, I, we went through all this and we're going back and forth. And I says, okay, explain the part on the tape where the lights beaming down at Hall's feet. And you know what he tried to say it was? He said, what? Colonel Hall mistaked it for a star. Right. Oh, my God. You yeah, know, Colonel, Colonel, Hall, Colonel Hall was a forward area, area controller in Vietnam. His job was to observe and do re- <laughs> to put air strikes in. Our job, we're, we were trained monthly, uh, uh, security was, on aircraft recognition and silhouetting. We were experts on aerial phenomena. We knew what we were looking for. The thing is, I mean, we knew we could tell if it was a known aircraft, and James Book aircraft. We knew that if it was Warsaw Pack, we know anything like that. And, um, you know, at least we had training. Uh, all the security police forces out there. Uh, I don't know what kind of credentials those skeptics have because I don't think they're experts on aerial phenomena. Uh, and what school did they go to? And, you know, is there a degree program for that uh, to be a UFO skeptic? Or, you know, I, I have my doubts about them at all. I think what they're trying to do is, uh, uh, is uh, probably uh, something for their own gain. That's what I believe is happening here. I don't think it uh, uh, it is uh, any type of uh, investigation is done in earnest to get the facts out. Uh, I just don't see that. I don't well, let's see, ratchet, I, actually, well, let's ahead, ratchet this up a notch, guys. Do you think that since there are such obvious holes and logical disconnects and factual disconnects, in the skeptical arguments, just plain, flat-out, incorrect facts, things that they should know, that omissions, that they should know that they're not stating. Since, since we've pointed all that out, do you see not just disingenuousness in the skeptical arguments, but that somehow the skeptics might have been influenced by powers that be? I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it's a possibility. Powers that be saying, look, you could do us an enormous favor and keep your access to the stories we will tell you by keeping this argument alive. Do you think that's, that's a, a good, would be an act? That's a, that's a good observation, Bill. It's one or the other. Yeah, I mean, some, I, something I, is wrong. And this is one of the arguments that I like to make. When truth and reality bend around a black hole, you know there's something in the black hole that's causing truth to bend. I mean, that's, no, that's just my take on it. Uh, the other I thing agree. about Colonel Hall, before we open this up to um, phone calls, I guess, Paul and Ben, is um, Colonel Hall not only <clears throat> was a forward air observer, but in Vietnam... Uh, one of the things he engineered, it's a great story, it's called Christmas in Vietnam. Uh, the North Vietnamese believed that the American forces would be standing down on Christmas, kind of like they, they, they took the page out of Washington crossing the Delaware. 
and they thought that the American forces would be standing down in Vietnam because of Christmas. So the North Vietnamese thought, what a perfect time to send convoy after convoy of trucks down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Well, in fact, the Americans weren't standing down. And what they were doing was getting set to, A, surveil the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but to um, flip flares out of Air Force, um, out of, I guess, C-130s, out of these planes to, to light up the Ho Chi Minh Trail so the F-4s could come in and basically take out all the trucks coming down. Well, what Colonel Hall told me, this was when he was in Vietnam, was that they tried and tried to get the, a, a spring device engineered uh, through official channels to get um, these planes to be able to launch those flares. Nothing happened. They, uh, they couldn't get it. They didn't have enough time. Christmas was coming up. So it was Colonel Halt who engineered the spring device, or at least who oversaw the engineering of those spring devices on those planes to get the flares to launch. And he was one of the officers directly responsible for um, facilitating that, for launching those flares. And the story was that it was Christmas in Vietnam, and we lit up, our, Amer our Air Force lit up the Ho Chi Minh Trail and literally wiped out convoy after convoy of North Vietnamese trucks backed up on the trail, thinking they would have an easy entree into South Vietnam. So um, that was part of Colonel Holt's background. And um, so I really don't think he'd be so panicked about a lighthouse <laughs> that he'd stake it for a UFO. No. I'm with Ben. Do you have phone calls? Uh, actually, we. <clears throat> excuse me. Let me, let me give you the number. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Hmm. We've got uh, a lot of our uh, people listen, uh, of course, uh, in podcast form. But the number here: eight 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 two three five seven three seven four. Toll free in the U.S. and Canada. And from the U.K., uh, the number is two zero three three one eight zero six eight eight. And we do have a question from David in Colorado. Uh, hope you're taking questions. Well, David, you're in luck. Well, specific to this case, did either of the witnesses see or hear? Uh, we'll go off the screen here. Let me. Did either of the witnesses see or hear anything that might imply a terrestrial origin, such as a black project? It's funny. We have another question on that too. Or conversely, <clears throat> anything that gave a clear impression of ETR? Why don't we take this in sections? Uh, the first question is. Is there anything that might have, apply, have implied a terrestrial origin, such as a black project? I'll just throw that out to anybody who wants to answer. Uh, well, uh, triangular craft, I guess that would be a... <laughs> yeah, okay, triangular craft, that would be one. Uh, but here's the things that don't add up, and knowing it's not a terrestrial craft. Uh, we cannot design today engines that don't make sound. We cannot have an aircraft take off with no air disturbance. And the other thing is, if the speed that was used for that takeoff, uh, any pilot would be nothing but goo from the, from the G-force. I mean, there's just no way, there's no way that that could uh, uh, even play into it. Okay. And I guess in a way you answered the second part of the question, anything that gave a clear impression of E.T. origin, one thinks perhaps of the uh, inscription. No, nothing. Uh, nothing. E.T., uh, I don't believe him. Uh, okay. i tell you what, uh, what we had is a craft unknown origin. We were there to get facts, 
and that's what we did. We recorded them. We gave, uh, reported the information that, that we had to give. And uh, uh, what it was is an aircraft that was we couldn't uh, identify the origin. We, uh, I, I personally looked for intakes, uh, uh, exhausts, uh, crew compartments, uh, all that. It was void of all those things. Uh, um, uh, but to say where it's from, that would be a guess. Okay. Uh, third part of David's question, and again, it's, 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 could you give your personal opinions on origin? I don't know if John has anything to say on that. Of where it's from? Yeah. It's unknown. That's what unknown. I okay. Because we don't know. I, I okay. can't give you a definite answer on what it was. Sure. Uh, all right. Also, uh, this uh, part of the question is for Bill. Uh, how does uh, Bill rank this in other cases for origin, probably E.T. or probably not, or both? Well, that's one of the funny things. To answer the question, I mean, I really have to agree with um, John on this. The, one of the problems, okay, you, you have to make, and this is, you know, again, this is kind of my logical methodology, if you want to call it that. If you can apply logical methodology to, to UFO cases, it's this. You have to make a distinction between saying um, this is what the evidence says this thing is and here's what I think it is. And what I think it is is pure speculation. So when it comes to coming up with the origin of this, when it comes to coming up with, uh, you know, where I think, whether I think this is otherworldly, a time machine, interdimensional, anything along those lines, it's pure speculation. Because nobody really knows. If you're coming up with what the evidence tells you, is that it's the evidence is telling you that, A, it's not some kind of a holographic image meant to frighten the Air Force personnel. It couldn't be because Jim Penniston put his hands on it. You can't put your hands on a holographic image. Mm-hmm. Whether I think that um, that the con- so that was one conventional explanation. Conventional explanation too. Everybody is running around crazy around Christmas time, frightened, and they're mistaking the light for the light at Orford Nest for the light in the forest. Again, not true. We've pr- we've shown it couldn't have been the light. Three, it was all made up. Not true because there's trace evidence on the ground, both in the form of landing impressions and in the form of radioactive trace evidence that something was there and even the higher-ups who are shushing everybody are admitting something happened that night and there was another witness who saw the whole thing so you've got all that so clearly something happened that was extraordinary that was anomalous and in the field of ufo like evidence statements that's really as far as you can go it was an object because james peniston put his hands on it so was the object ours was the object somebody else's like this like the russians or was it from some other realm off this planet or out of this time frame and the fact is james peniston is correct. The Air Force at that time really didn't seem to have anything that could do that. I mean, if you look back to 1980, maybe we have something now, but certainly not then. And and so you tend to say the preponderance of evidence tells you that it was not one of our own craft. And why would we and why would we land one of our own craft at one of the top 
mostly secure bases um, for NATO at a time when the Soviets are rolling into Afghanistan. I mean, it, it like defies logic that we would do that. What if somebody really did get nervous and say we're being invaded and torch off a nuke? You know, I mean, obviously the failsafe mechanisms would kick in, but you don't want that to happen. So you're not going to do that. You're not going to jack up. You're not going to ratchet up the intensity on that. So the proponents of evidence would say that it's not from here, that it's something else. But where it's from, who was in there, who sent it, why was it sent, that's all speculation. I'll be happy to speculate, but that's where the evidence takes you. Okay. Well, we have a question from uh, sent in advance by Patty G. from Quebec City in Quebec. And she raises the question of the accuracy of eyewitness accounts. And uh, she, she actually says here, uh, the first thing people look for in a court of law seems to be eyewitnesses. And yet in cases such as this or any other paranormal event, eyewitnesses are often questioned. What do the eyewitnesses themselves think of the accuracy of eyewitness accounts? In other words, I suppose, uh, do, do you trust in, in any situation an eyewitness account or do you not? Or is it somewhere in between or what? Jim, why don't you take that first? Well, you know, John actually was law enforcement, and he has a great uh, 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 description of eyewitnesses. And uh, I'd like to have him just jump in on that because it's it's pretty accurate how eyewitness reports are. Well, you can you can honestly say that you can. There's an old thing where you can start a story with 30 people in a room and start it and give the story to what you said the story is, and by the time it gets it back around to you, it's completely different. And people will look at things from different angles, different perceptions, remember different things and everything else. So, I mean, there you have it in that sense, but ultimately it goes back to what Bill just said and the fact that there is enough evidence to show that something strange happened and, and we can't really tell you what it was. Okay. All right. The well, I, I have a comment on that too, because Ben and I get that all the time. Uh, you know, people will question. <clears throat> in our particular case, it's usually you know ghost research, or whatever. But I always come back with you know, regardless of whether an eyewitness is accurate in every single detail, the eyewitness eyewitness was there, and you were not there. I mean, that has got to cut some ice. Well, I like to comment too. I mean, just basically, uh, since since we raised the issue of court of law, and it's simply this that. In a court of law, there is a whole set of procedures for what you do. In order to complete this call, you must dial the area code and the telephone number. Uh, okay. Okay. Are we there? Yeah, we're, I'm, I'm here. I don't know what that okay. was. So, so um, in a court of law, uh, let's just take federal uh, criminal procedure or federal civil procedure. There are a whole set of um, things you do, call them things, to really validate and weigh the evidence of an eyewitness. One of the most important things is not, believe it or not, what the witness saw, but what the witness's experience or professional experience is as an observer, right? Now, let's just look at this one case. You've got John Burroughs, Air Force Security, former law enforcement, a police testimony, a police witness cannot just put a person in jail, but multiple police witnesses can actually send someone to um, to the executioner's block. It's just that simple. Jim Penniston was not only an eyewitness, 
He was also Air Force security, again, a, a, in a law enforcement role, albeit within the Air Force, but actually touched the object. So you've got two immensely credible witnesses with us tonight, and that's what's so important. So that on the credibility index that a court would assess, John and Jim are really at the top of the chart. And it's a multiple witness case with both witnesses, even if there's some difference in detail, but both witnesses corroborating one another's story. So, yes, in a court of law, if I were the attorney, uh, this is a slam dunk. Okay. Well, Patty has a second part of her question, and this is: uh, do, Does any of the, do any of the witnesses feel that the, this might have been a military experiment carried out to see to test their reactions uh, to these stimuli? John and Jim. Actually, we lost Jim. Okay. Uh, what, what the studio tells me, we're going to try to get him back. So, John, what do you think? John? I looked at a lot of possibilities, okay? And one of the things that always keeps sticking out is EM, okay, and the effects that EM can cause. Now, does that mean they were experimenting directly on us? doesn't mean they were. Could they have been conducting something out there? Possibly. You had the orphan nest. You had two highly classified radar sites out there. You had models from heat there. There's all kinds of things that were out there. To include the Cobra miss was being blocked by something that they could never explain, and they actually shut it down, but they kept the scientists with Cobra miss at Bentwaters. So is it possible? Yes. It, it very well. There's evidence there that shows it could involve something to do with the military. Does that mean what it is? No, not necessarily. And as of right now, you can't prove it was for sure, no. Well, John, can I ask you, um, again and again, the skeptics say nothing on radar, nothing on radar. Colonel Holt and, and folks in, in the forest were frantically, according to their words, contacting radar, and there were no radar targets. Is that true? Our, our night, and I'm going to talk about our night now, not about what Colonel Holt well, let me doing. Let me jump you in on that one, okay? John, let me okay, jump okay. in on, the front, on, that, on that first night. Uh, radar contact was the reason I went out there. Good. Thank you, Jim. Because, because what happened was, is I was being told by Sergeant Stephens and Airman Burles, hey, something landed out there. I looked at it. It didn't make sense to me. I went back to the gate shack at the east gate, direct line CSC. I says, it looks like a possible aircraft crash. I says, do you have anything that would indicate that? And while I'm talking to the security controller, they're checking with multiple radar. And about uh, while I was still talking to them, within 30 seconds, they're coming back. Yes, we had contact 15 nights ago, which is minutes ago. He says, lost contact over RF Woodbridge. Confirmed. So, Jim. So that's when I, that, that, that was radar contact. Okay, Jim. So, the, so, so, so A, uh, Paul and Ben, to your, witness, uh, to your questioner, talking about um, credible witnesses, now there's an electronic witness, which was radar, further corroborating Jim and John. Yeah, but go. We, yeah. wouldn't, we would have never went off base. We would have went off there uh, with the, uh, the software agreement and all that unless there was an actual uh, confirmation of that. And now, that was through radar. Now, Jim and John, when the skeptics, notably David Clark and others, say, oh, my God, there's no radar. How could you possibly say there was something there when there was no radar? Jim, you were a witness to a radar contact. Yes. 
Okay. Yes, that's the only reason we, we got permission to go off base. So as because you can the, see, I mean, as the audience can see, one by one, these skeptical arguments are simply falling away as false. Okay. All right. Well, we have a, we're ready for another question. Uh, we have one from Patrick in Dublin, Ireland. And this is uh, to John Burroughs. Uh, elsewhere you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, Elsewhere, you mentioned that in recent years, you had seen something while on duty that could possibly account for some of what was seen on the third night. On a scale of 1 to 10, how sure would you be that what you saw on duty could account for some of what was seen in 1980? Okay. Uh, okay. To, to clarify this, I didn't retire until 2006. I was stationed over in the Middle East on a couple of TDYs. And other installations. I have seen stuff in the sky and different things that have gone on that I stated mainly reasonably, possibly some of what went on at that was could be that we actually were experimenting with stuff. And it was different things that were moving around and different effects that they could cause. Other than that, I can't go into any more detail on that. But what I'm doing that is, in the back of my mind, I've always had it that it could have been something that we were doing that created what happened, and it went from there. So so that's where I stand on this, and I'm still to this day open to any possibility as far as military, something from somewhere else or anything else. I just can't tell you exactly what it was. Okay. Uh, and just maybe to give Jim a chance, because I think Jim was was off the air when, when uh, we asked Patty's question, uh, Patty from Quebec, about uh, military experiments possibly being responsible for what you fellas experienced, that, that it could have been a deliberate experiment by the military to test your readiness or, or your psychological well-being or whatever. Is there any indication, Jim, uh, that that was the case in your that mind? That was the case. Well, no, there wasn't. there's nothing that would... Uh, it just doesn't fit into it at all. If there was yeah. going to be something to test our readiness, the command level would know that. Okay. All right. I mean, it's just, I mean, first of all, it was just too dangerous to do that. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, we had, uh, we had uh, armed personnel that were, uh, yeah, it's just, that's not in the mix at all. I don't think they understand the seriousness of the business that was being conducted on that base. Sure. Um, uh, that kind of stuff don't happen on, on the largest military installation, tactical fighter wing in the Air Force, okay? Mm -hmm. It just don't happen. Yep. Well, I'm former military, too, and I certainly agree with that. That just doesn't fit. Uh, <coughs> excuse me again. This is from John in Austin, Texas. And John wants to know if in ensuing years any of you have been followed or otherwise monitored by what might be called men in black or any other intelligence personnel uh, since the case. Now, is there any indication that you have been... Uh, observed or monitored or anything of this kind uh, since uh, this case occurred 30 years ago. Well, let me ask you one question on off everything else. Okay, it's an interesting question just because maybe you'll dispel what Jim and I cares about. It, how long would you say normally it would take to get a passport if you apply today? You're asking me? Uh, a month? Yeah, anybody. You wanted you to, if you wanted to put in for a passport and had to get a new passport, how long would you say it would take? That might take longer. But how long? Give me an estimate. All right. Uh, the re replacement, maybe two months to six months. Okay. Now, if I told you that Jim and I, because we're going back to England on the 28th, 
both put in our passports within, within one week of each other, and we both received them within eight days. What would you say? Okay, I, I didn't quite make that out. Could you repeat it? Okay. In the past month, starting at the beginning of October, because Jim and I are going to travel over to England, and both of our passports have expired. Okay. And they went past the five-year date, so you had to completely get a brand-new passport. Jim and I, from Chicago and, and from Arizona, applied for new passports. We were told at the office it would take anywhere between four to six weeks. Both of us got our passports back within eight days. Really? Yes. What? Well, I don't know what that was. Aliens trying to call in. What, there you uh, go. Uh, okay. Yeah, what, what, uh, what's your opinion of, uh, of that? Someone's kind of keeping an eye on things or what? I don't know. Is it, is it really it's very quick. To get a passport right there, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't travel yeah, overseas a lot. You know, these things do take John time. I think John and I have been monitored, of course. And I think yeah. uh, that's the reason why this is the only uh, case to date with the United States Air Force. They haven't responded on one way or the other about it in 30 years. They've been very quiet about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, try to discredit, you know, discredit us, endorse us. Whatever, they have said nothing. And there's a reason for that, because they, they don't have all the answers. I do believe that uh, uh, they believe that John and I would do have answers to this. And uh, to be quite honest with you, on the 28th, I'm, I'm, because of this witness thing, let's go back to the eyewitness stuff. One of the things uh, in, in, with witnesses, if you can take them back, if it was like with a criminal thing, you take them back to a crime scene, they're more likely to remember everything that was transpiring at that crime scene. So when we go back on the 28th, John and I are hoping for uh, more total recall of what was going on. Uh, and I think there's just people that would like to know what exactly we are going to recall. Okay, yeah. All right, well, also just simply to uh, to respond to John in, in, in Austin, Texas, uh, as part of that question about monitoring and interference or whatever, I mean, all you have to do, John, is listen to the uh, entire run of this show. We've been on, this is over 12 hours now covering this case, and on, we moved it off CBS. The first, uh, edi- the first editions of the show were three hours each on CBS, and, and all the fellows who were on today were on those shows. And can tell you, you know, the, the weird, god-awful, crazy interference that occurred, and this is CBS here. They didn't know what it was. We didn't know what it was, and it practically knocked us off the air. As a matter of fact, we lost the third hour of our second show, because of all this weird interference, there was uh, p- people reported hearing laughing in the background and all sorts of bizarre stuff. And, and we put it on Achieve here, and either they haven't found us yet or they don't want to bother our, our poor uh, producer, Bill Schreiner. But in any case, uh, from, even from the broadcaster's point of view, something's been messing with this show, as I've never seen anything like it. Well, um, I can add, this is a, a rejoinder as well, that... Various folks uh, from various agencies did monitor us on UFO hunters as we went from place to place. Not that we're revealing big secrets, not that we blew the lid off U.S. intelligence. They were, according to one person, furious that we set up surveillance cameras around Area 51 and caught some strange object in the sky. But, of course, other people have since done that. They were angry that we brought a huge uh, telephoto lens up on Tickaboo Peak and, 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 and photographed into the base. That made him mad, too. But the fact is we were being monitored. And oh, you know that better than anybody. You were messed with. 
We were. And of course, um, messages went back to the network. These guys have really gone too far. They're sticking their noses in where they shouldn't go. They're going to blow something by accident. They're idiots. They don't know the fire they're playing with. So the point is, yes, all that happened. One of the people who was monitoring us uh, told me as our paths crossed in a distant location that um, United States civilian intelligence services, more than the military, although they are pretty closely aligned, uh, have so deeply penetrated every aspect of American life from the media to, I mean, there are people at NBC and CBS and people who actually work for the intelligence services. I believe it. Okay, and that every as, and if I drop some names, you wouldn't believe it. But to get the access that they want, they cooperate. They'll do the stories that are wanted, and they're listening posts. So something comes up that's big, they're going to let these guys know. We really are an intelligence-dominated culture at every single level of our society and in most businesses. So, and that's not even mentioning NSA's echelon. Well, Bill, that that leads right into the next question for everybody, and that's from Susan in Florida. Uh, Susan says, great show. Uh, A lot of people refer to this event as the best case in proving UFOs exist. Is it possible that because this case crossed international jurisdictions from a U.S. air base in the U.K., thereby involving U.S. military, U.K. military, and U.K. civil authority, that any cover-up was not as easy or was botched due to intergovernmental and interagency issues? Let's just throw that right out. Well, let me answer that. Uh, The MOD part, uh, the memo, that was released by MOD. That actually was a copy. It it got out... uh, we were guaranteed, assured at the time that it was treated as top secret. The information would have never got out uh, on the case, and they probably would have just treated it as top secret. And I'm sure our debrief at our retirement would have been different. The paperwork we had to sign, uh, saying that you know would add it in as it was classified, which they said it was not because it didn't exist. The the situation. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, that the answer to that, if it was in U.S. Uh, hands completely, uh, this story would probably never be out. Uh, it was by uh, accident that it was actually through the Freedom of Information Act with, the, I think, the MOD, that copy they had. Uh, if we hadn't had them involved uh, with the uh, RAF liaison, I don't think nothing uh, would have ever gotten out about this story. Okay. Uh, John? No, that's pretty good about it. I don't think the Air Force would have wanted that out. And the fact that it did get out caused a lot of problems for a lot of people, and it still has to this day. Okay. Well, right, actually, uh, let me interrupt you, fellas. we got Tim uh, Gertrick on the uh, on, on the line here uh, as we come into our last few minutes of the show. Uh, Tim, are you with us? Yeah. Hi, Paul. Um, Paul and Ben, another great show. Um, I wanted to call in to uh, maybe address the debunkers, but um, sounds like you guys got it all covered, and they really didn't have much to say. Um, yeah, there were two chicken to come on the show, apparently. Yeah, I understand. Uh, and, uh, Jim, you were talking about being able to see the lighthouse from East Gate. I, I tell you, I worked many of uh, uh, swings and mids out there on Woodbridge, and I don't even remember seeing a lighthouse through all those trees. It's so, pretty dim, I mean, isn't it? <laughs> it, it, it must have been. Uh, I, I tried to get a friend of mine, uh, John Saunders, who lives uh, in Martlesham Heath. He goes out there around once a month at, at night um, 
They've got some kind no, of I group actually know that. there. I actually John know John. Uh, yeah, yeah and, I, I uh, actually, you want a better you want a better view, Tim, at the uh, of the lighthouse. You got to get on the end of the runway. Okay, and uh, you get on the end of the runway, you get a better view at it, looking at it. So, uh, yeah, okay. John, I happen to know him too. So he's a he's a decent guy. Yeah, well, I, I met him. I went over there in, in 2002 and 2006, and uh, I, unfortunately, I went there during the daytime, so I didn't didn't get to see uh, a lighthouse at all. Um, John. John, I've got uh, I've got a question for you. Uh, it's about the dates of events. You might have you might know this is even coming. Um, I recently emailed uh, Monroe Nevels, and he kind of backs me up on the date that this all happened. Um, did, do you have a change of opinion on when your event, or I'm sorry, it would have been yeah when your event uh, happened with uh, Colonel Halt? No, um, because the fact is that ours, we came on duty on Christmas night and went into Boxing Day, and I was off duty Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and the second night that I was out there was Saturday night into Sunday. And okay. the interesting thing was this summer when I met with Colonel Conrad, he was a little mixed up about dates as far as he wasn't quite sure. But what happened was his wife was there, and she set him straight right in front of the road, too, and said, look, we would have been having a party on Saturday night. We wouldn't have had it on Christmas night. We wouldn't have had it on Boxing Day. We had our Christmas party that Saturday night. And that was the night that everybody came in and interrupted the party, and that's when it took place from there. So, so that, was the 20, that was the 27th, right? I'm sorry, what? That was the 27th, right? Yeah, I absolutely believe the night I was out with Colonel Hall, was Saturday night and Sunday morning, the 27th and the 28th. Now, if something else happened after the 27th and something more went on on the 28th and the 29th, I'm not aware of that. But I do know when I was out there with Colonel Hall that night, it took place that Saturday night and the Sunday morning. Now, Tim, okay. so and getting back, so Tim, just getting back to the skeptic again, one of the things David Clark is hammering on the basis of his conversation with Colonel Conrad is that Jim Penniston and John Burroughs are incorrect about the date, or at least Jim Penniston was incorrect about the dates and Colonel Hall was incorrect about the dates. But if Colonel Conrad was incorrect about the dates and his wife corrected him, that doesn't turn up in David Clark's um, uh, uh, report of his conversation with Colonel Conrad. Yeah, I, I think Jim... I don't know if Jim ever uh, was wrong about his dates because him and John had their own separate dates the early morning of the 26th. Uh, I don't think anybody uh, disputes that. Um, last year I was on vacation out in Las Vegas, and I still keep in contact with a lot of D-flight people. That's D as in Delta. Uh, myself and Mike Christian, Wayne Skinner, and Bob Kosminski, we met out there, and I asked them if they remembered it. Mike was already gone. But uh, Wayne and Bob remembered that it happened on our last midnight shift, and I might have pushed them toward that. As uh, same thing when I happened uh, happened to talk to Rick Bobo, he wasn't sure. But when I said, "Do you remember coming back to work the next night?" and they didn't remember, which meant that would have been the night of the 28th going into the 29th. Um, now Monroe Nevels was the first. I didn't even lead Monroe Nevels. I just asked him, "Do you remember? I, I heard you on the show. You said your wife went to the chapel or to the church. Do you remember uh, the exact date or day this happened?" And he came back. And John, you were in the loop on that email, 
and he said it, it was the 28th, the afternoon of the 28th, late afternoon, so that would have taken and uh, the 28th, early morning of the 29th. And I, I guess, you know, we can go offline about that, John, um, uh, if you want to talk about that. But, um, John, one more thing, if, if you guys don't mind. Uh, the, the Whiskey Two Tower, somebody being in the Whiskey Two Tower, John, I heard you early on the show say, this person has come forward. Um, now, when you say has come forward, has he come forward anonymously? Because I, I've never heard a name mentioned. It's Pobo. He, he came out and did an interview with Robert Hastings, and he also did an interview with uh, Linda Moulton Howe. And he described what he saw from the tower and what went on. Okay. I missed the first part. Did you mention a name? Yeah, Rick Bobo is the one that's come out that said he was in the tower. Okay, yeah, okay. yeah Rick Bobo. I, I put uh, – I put – uh, Robert Hastings and, and uh, Georgina Bruni in contact with Rick Bobo. Um, you know, Rick, Rick was a pretty good friend of mine over there. Uh, but Rick wasn't the guy who said uh, a, a, an aircraft came over the WSA and was shining down a beam of light on the weapons storage area. That, Rick, Rick's never said that, as far as I know. The mix-up with that has to do with this. There were two guys allegedly out there working on the tower that night, working on some of the sensor equipment. And they were the ones that had told Hastings and Hall that they saw something come over, beam something down, and go through the tower. But, no, Rick Bobo never has said that. Yeah, John, weren't they from the comm squadron? Yes, they were from the comm squadron, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay, Jim, uh, that, that's what I understand, too. And I, I listened back to uh, my call-in from April, and I did catch where Colonel Hall said, this happened on your flight, Jim and John. This happened on sea flight. So, Jim, this would have been a security guy working the tower on the uh, early morning of the 26th while you were out, you know, with your event in Rendlesham. Um, I, I've also talked to somebody that was working CSC that night for sea flight. Uh, I won't mention his name uh, right now, but, John, I'll tell you offline. Um, he doesn't remember anything like that happening. He remembers an event already being turned over to sea flight, which that's the way I remember it. We went off duty, uh, D-Flight did on a swing shift. We said something was out there. Jim, I think when I asked you about it later, you didn't remember, you know, your event just happened, um, but nothing was turned over from D-Flight to inform you guys that, uh, you know, there was already something out there. Like a, uh, the guy who was working at CSC thought a helping hand was already uh, issued. There was a helping hand issued, and I don't know why Donnie's saying that. You know, I really don't, uh, because uh, it seems like it's, he has memory when he wants it and memory when he doesn't. So I'm not really sure uh, what what that is about. I know I had, uh, what was the, I think we had a security controller, then we had the plotter uh, in CSC, and that was uh, at the time for uh, our shift was uh, Sergeant Dillard and Sergeant Coffey. That's what we had. Okay. Okay, right. Uh, the, the, I don't the know who was working uh, your shift. Well, the comp plotters, they were, they were kind of on their own schedule. I think they were working 12-hour shifts, and, you know, right. they can overlap right. other people's shifts. Right. Hey, uh, fellas, we're going to have to kind of start to wind it down here. It breaks my heart to say it, but we're going to be running out of time here in just very, very, uh, just a few seconds. Uh, uh, any last um, Any last words from anyone, including Tim? Because uh, we're yeah, back uh, next month, we can pick up on some of this. Okay. Um, 
uh, I guess it was uh, the Monroe Neville's uh, interview where somebody was mentioned as being abducted. Um, uh, Jim and John, did you kind of maybe rule yourself out and that maybe this happened uh, on D Flight's first midnight shift and this might have happened with Bob Ball or Bonnie Tamplin? Well, I mean, we don't have a lot of time. All I'm going to tell you is Monroe Nebels said that what what he was told was by Lieutenant England, and it happened when Jim and I were out there. That much I know because I met with Monroe this summer. And I also do know, to clarify something on the dates, Monroe this summer, after looking at everything at that point, told Linda and I that his wife would have only been at the chapel on Saturday to prepare for Sunday. But I do know that when Monroe was speculating on, suppose it was told to him by England when he picked him up, and it happened to when Jim and I were out in the forest. Okay. Okay. All right, fellas, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it that. Uh, Tim, thank you for calling in, and thank you especially to our wonderful panel, uh, Bill Burns, Jim Penniston and John Burroughs. Uh, we will be back next month with Rendlesham 6 uh, with uh, Stan Friedman anchoring our panel, and we can probably pick up on some of these points, then, although the point of that show is going to be uh, the human toll this has taken on, on all you fellows and all the witnesses, and, uh, and, and that's going to be our theme. And in December, we'll see. We're going to try and broadcast from Rendlesham Forest itself from the reunion. We'll see how it goes. Fellas, thank you so much. This has been a great show. And thank all, thank also our, our, our listeners and our callers and those who wrote in. Uh, I think we're really contributing something special uh, to ufology in general, in this case in particular. And, uh, <clears throat> again, a podcast of all these shows are available at BehindTheParanormal.com, our show website, and certainly at AchieveRadio.com. And again, uh, if you can't uh, get enough of us, just wanted to say that uh, we'll see you again in two hours, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific, for our regular weekly show on CBS Radio in Boston, uh, now Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit, and Seattle, and on www.NewSkyRadio.com and ParaX.com. Our subject tonight is, of course, Behind Halloween. And we'll be interpreting some famous ghost stories according to our multiverse theories. That'll be a little different. And on our Monday drive time show in the Boston Providence Worcester Triangle on WON 1240 AM and com. We'll have an open line show to answer some of the hundreds of questions uh, Ben and I received after our Coast to Coast AM radio appearance on October 13th. And uh, I believe Ben was, I've been on that show a lot, but Ben was his first appearance, and I believe he was the youngest person ever to be invited as a guest on that show, and they even gave him his his own little bio page on there, which that was cute. Uh, Anyway, we'll see you back here on Achieve, uh, AchieveRadio.com on November 28th. We'll return to Rendlesham 6, as I say, co-hosted by grandfather of ufology, Stanton T. Friedman. Uh, the theme will be the human cost, as I say, of these, uh, of these events to these heroes uh, and what they've had to pay in the wake of the Rendlesham experience. And then in December, we'll wrap it up with uh, the uh, hopefully return to Rendlesham 7, and uh, we'll be dealing with the actual reunion and uh, the reaction these fellows are having. Uh, we're also talked off the air to, to uh, Bill Burns, our, our co-host tonight, about uh, uh, doing a sequel in January, having to do with another case that occurred right before this uh, case in Randallshim in 1980 <clears throat> and that uh, took some tremendous... Um has some tremendous implications for, for the situation. And again, free podcast, BehindTheParanormal.com. We'll leave you uh, tonight with a quote from the great Irish author Oscar Wilde. Quote, the truth is rarely pure and never simple. Unquote. 
Thanks for coming along on our cosmic journey today. We'll see you next time. God bless. AchieveRadio.com. Hi, folks. This is Paul Eno, co-host of Behind the Paranormal here on Achieve Radio. We're very pleased to have as our sponsor New River Press and Barking Cat Books, publishers of some of the most unusual New Age titles on the market today. Along with four books by Moi, New River Press offers the blockbuster on animal communication, Hear All Creatures, The Journey of an Animal Communicator by Karen Anderson, Shadows on My Shift, Real Life Stories of a Psychic EMT by Psychic Medium Sherry Lee Devereaux, Achieve